Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 191. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss Thor The Dark World in preparation of the release of Love and Thunder. It's interesting that we're sitting here discussing this today, pondering where it ranks when you when you talk about the MCU as a whole, right? Because up until recently, this was a film that was sort of universally recognized as the worst film in the MCU. I think the conversation changed a lot after The Eternals came out. My question, though, is after we sit and discuss this... Put aside the release of The Eternals, would we still rank this as the worst film in the MCU with this revisit today? I'm not going to answer that question off the top, but I am looking forward to discussing this because I had only ever seen it the once after we saw it in theaters. That was it. So aside from the refresh that I feel is necessary before Love and Thunder, just because so much has happened since then... Um, I think it was good to look at this with a fresh set of eyes. For sure. Especially because there's a lot that happens in this film that ends up being essential to the rest of the MCU. There are some things here that kind of get buried, I think, and you tend to forget about it because of the reputation that this film had when it was released. The other thing that's interesting of note with this film is that this is where you start to see a lot more comedy get put into the Thor films. You saw it a little bit in the first one. Obviously, you see it a lot more in Ragnarok. We know that we're going to get it in Love and Thunder just by virtue of the Guardians being interwoven with Thor now. But this is where you start to see Thor take like a left turn into more comedy than action. I agree, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, number one, like you said, he is starting to get integrated with the Guardians, but even prior to that, this is the follow-up to Avengers. So what happens when you have Thor mixed in with Tony Stark, with the Cap? You know, obviously Tony's very funny, so you kind of have to have these other characters match wits with it, with him. And I feel like that's part of it is that they had to start writing the character differently just to keep up. The other thing is that now we've had a change in directors. Uh, Kenneth Branagh directed Thor uh, and Dark World is directed by Alan Taylor. So this was after Disney's acquisition of Marvel. And I think that that probably had a lot to do with it. We touched on that last week that we were still counting Thor as a Disney film because it wasn't produced by Disney. It was distributed by them. But this was the first Thor film that was soup to nuts under Disney. Right. Um, so does the comedy work? Was this the right turn for it to make? As I asked before, is this still the worst film in the MCU? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. 
This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date with all of the new releases. Centuries ago, Bor, father of Odin, waged war against the Dark Elves as Malekith wished to unleash the dangerous Aether on the Nine Realms, but the Asgardians stopped him and supposedly destroyed the Aether, quote-unquote, when in fact they buried it where they believed it would never be found. With Loki in captivity, he tells Odin that his birthright is a throne, and Odin tells him that he will remain in the dungeon for life while Thor is destined to be king. We also learn that Frigga spared Loki's life. The open here is fast-paced, it's good, it's straight, and it's to the point, and that is the last time you will hear me say that for the rest of this conversation. I agree. I feel like they learned from their mistakes of the first one at, by starting with the mythology flashback, because that was a big critique that you and I had last week, that you're starting with Jane and everything that's happening in New Mexico. Then you jump to Asgard, and then we see this retread of Thor coming to Earth after his powers have been stripped, and she hits him with the car. Funny as it is, we didn't need to see it twice. Uh, so I like that they set us up with the history of everything that we're going to need to know, especially because that does play into an Infinity Stone. Um, and I think it was really smart to address Loki right away because this is coming on the heels of Avengers. So I like that we didn't waste any time wondering what is happening to Loki once Thor leaves Earth with him in cuffs. Right. I thought it was also interesting that it was Frigga, of all people, that spared his life, and that Odin was willing, I mean, basically, Odin was willing to execute Loki. I mean, that's kind of, I think, what they're leading you to believe. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a surprise that Frigga wanted his life spared, because even though he did some horrible things, she still has that maternal instinct She's never looked at him as anything other than a son, especially because there were so many times in Thor that Loki flipped back and forth. And, he, you know, I had mentioned this last week that he's never going to do anything to actually harm his family. So I think that she recognizes that. And that's why she gave him not necessarily. a Well, no, it's a pass because she did make him very comfortable in his prison cell. The other prisoners don't have cushy chairs and books and things like that. Um, but I think it is interesting that Odin is ready to write him off because Odin refers to him as a prisoner, not even by his name. Right. He just calls him prisoner. Um and you would think that Odin would be trying to earn a little redemption from him because he's the one who took him from the Frost Giants. He's the one Loki is blaming for lying and keeping Loki's uh, secret from him. Right. So you would, I mean, not that Odin needs to like curry favor with him, but if anyone is going to try and redeem themselves in Loki's eyes, you would maybe think that that would have been Odin's guilt carrying that thread. Right. And that's not what happens here at all. And th there are a lot of, there's a lot of change in Odin here that we're going to discuss later on. Um, 
whether or not it's for the better, I think, is still up for debate, and that'll be a part of this conversation today as well. Thor, Fandral, Volstag, and Sif, meanwhile, have battled and brought peace to the Nine Realms following Loki's crimes and returned to Asgard on the reconstructed Bifrost. While the Asgardians celebrate their victory, Thor pines for Jane, who is unsuccessfully dating on Earth while Eric Selvig has seemingly lost his mind. When Jane's equipment starts going off, Jane, Darcy, and their new intern Ian, to set, uh, they set off to see why the equipment is going crazy, because... Equipment, science, that, that, that's consistent at least, that hasn't changed, <laughs> just science and equipment. Um, Thor, let's talk about Thor for a second here. Um, Thor pining for Jane, I get it, it makes sense, obviously that becomes a big part of his character for basically every film that he is in following this film. Um, ah, my old flame. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. It started, it went from like being like the drunk joke to it, it became a bit much. And I understand that that's a big part of the source material and, and all that. But I think that they just went a little too heavy with it here. I would agree because we also have no explanation of, unless I'm really forgetting something from Avengers, of how the Bifrost is functional again because last we saw Thor destroyed the rainbow bridge. So now he can't get to earth. That was his sacrifice. So I think from there pining for Jane is natural. Uh, But there's a lot going on here that sort of seems a little random. So I think that pining for Jane is natural, but there are a lot of other relationships that are suffering as a result. I think it was a really smart way to write out Hogan staying with his people. But again, I had said this last week, they don't develop, they don't really develop the warriors. Right. So now we're losing this character from the first one more than likely because he doesn't have a role in breaking out of Asgard later. So I think it was smart to address it. That way they didn't just start this film fresh and, and we have no idea what happens to him. Right. But we we have no idea what this relationship is with Thor. Like they thank each other and then they they part ways. And maybe that's all it is. Maybe Maybe they weren't as tight as they were supposed to be in the first one. Maybe it was just a working relationship. I don't know. But it was kind of one step forward, two back. But I, I get it. You didn't exactly write yourselves into a corner this way. What really is throwing me is this thing with Sif. Yeah. Because I feel like it's conflict for conflict's sake. When we reviewed Thor last week, I thought I remembered there was a thing between them. And then when we watched it, I was like, oh, no, this is like a brother-sister relationship. She's got a good relationship with Frigga. After Thor leaves Jane behind... You know, she tells Frigga he's pining for her. He's upset. He's mourning the loss of his brother because at that time, Loki had, you know, let go when they were hanging off the bridge and he's just out into the abyss. And we don't know what happens until Avengers, obviously. But the way that Sif is laying all of this out to Frigga, I didn't read romance from that. I just read her looking out for her her fellow warrior to somebody that she looks up to somebody that's like a brother to her. 
I didn't think it was necessary. And now they planted the seed seemingly out of nowhere. I don't think anybody read romance. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know why they had to do it. And then other than Sif kind of being jealous of Jane a few more times throughout the movie, you don't ever see it again. Right. And that's the other thing. She knew who Jane was. She helps Thor protect her when the destroyer comes to New Mexico. Mm -hmm. She knows that Thor has feelings for her. Because she is one of Thor's right-hand people, she's just doing what needs to be done for him. Yeah. And now it just I, I think it weakens her character. It's a disservice to her. Right, because they made such a big deal of saying that a maiden can be a fair, you know, can be a warrior in the first film. And that was like such a big thing for her that she, you know, for a lack of a better term, was one of the guys, you know, and they, they didn't look at her as anything other than a great warrior. So to do this here, it's a step back for the character, and it just it raises too many questions. Right. And I mean Odin is the one who points it out and he tells Thor and and I guess that's it they they sort of buried this thread too much um he says you you need a partner to rule and I think we needed a few more scenes where Odin is pushing him towards the throne so that it lands harder at the end of what Thor is walking away from right yeah it's if that's what they were trying to do, you didn't need her. You know what I'm saying? Like Exactly. It, it could have just been Odin saying it about anybody. It could have been Odin talking about the throne. It could have been Odin talking about, you know, your your purpose is to be here on Asgard. You know what I'm saying? There's so many different ways you could do it. That wasn't one of them, and it's still, I just don't understand why they did do it. Right. It could have just been as simple as if you are going to take the throne, you need a partner an immortal is not going to work. Yeah. Speaking of the mortal, let's go to the most awkward date ever. Yeah. Let's. No no shade to Chris O'Dowd, who we love. Yeah. This whole thing is unnecessary. The whole thing is completely unmotivated and unnecessary. Yeah, and I'm I'm saying that it's a first date. There are points in it that feel I feel like it teeters on a strained relationship. Yeah. The way that she's buried in the menu and he slips her the note that says hi. Like if they had sort of been dating for like six months and he's ready to get serious with her, but she's so focused on her work and clearly she's not over Thor. I feel like it would have played better, but this is reading anywhere between like first, second or third date where they hardly know each other. And I, I, I don't know. You need a little bit more context for it. We didn't need to see bad dating. We didn't need to see Jane bad dating the same way we didn't need to see crazy Eric. You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand that Eric went through a lot in the Avengers and he literally had a God in his head. They said it later on in this film. Um, and I can, I'm cool with the fact that he's coming. No, this is the problem. He's not coming off as crazy 
crazy like a fox where he was right the whole time. He has literally lost his mind and trips over the fact that he was right the entire time. Yeah, I feel like I jinxed him because I had said last week that the the rest of the cast was like having so much fun with it and he had to be the anchor that was so serious all the time except for the scene with the bar um now they've overcompensated and he is the joke of this whole film remember that time i said stellan skarsgård is great so he's great in everything <laughs> uh this may be the rare exception but i don't blame him i blame bad direction bad screenwriting yeah, they just did a disservice to the character after Avengers. I feel like they they needed to keep his story alive, obviously for the, you know, the nameless science. Yeah. But um, they didn't necessarily think it all the way through as far as what he means to the bigger picture of Marvel. Speaking of uh, more relationships that are not working out, uh, I feel like this relationship with Darcy hasn't developed either. Right. And this is something I meant to bring up last week for the amount that Jane and Darcy have been through together. I thought they were going to sort of play it as this sisterly relationship where they get really close and it's like chosen family. Um, And I think that's what they try to do with the bickering, but Jane is flat out mean to her. The way she's like, time to go now. And you're she's interrupting this date that you don't even want to be on. Right. So I would think that if you're going to take digs like that at her, you need to have more. You need to have something to establish how close they actually are so that it's no hard feelings. I just think she's mean. And it's it's not really fair that she's treating her like her dumb intern. Yeah. Considering everything they've been through together and the fact that <clears throat> Darcy has gone all the way to London with her now. Right. Yeah, you, you'd think maybe a little bit more respect would be in the cards, but apparently not. In a warehouse, the team discovers a free-floating truck as well as a bottle that continues to fall, disappear, and reappear until it doesn't. Jane hasn't seen readings like this since New Mexico and becomes suspicious. Jane vanishes through a portal and into another world where she absorbs the ether, waking Malekith, who is set on resuming the Convergence attack when the Nine Realms are in line. But wait, there's more. On Asgard, <laughs> Heimdall tells Thor that he can't see Jane any longer. When Jane reappears in London, Darcy tells her that she was missing for five hours. Thor arrives to an angry Jane, who asks where Thor has been. Not like he was saving the world or anything. And he explains that he had to f- he had to fight to protect the Earth from the threats of the other realms. When the police arrive to try and arrest Jane for trespassing, the Aether fights them off. So f- uh, Thor takes her to Asgard. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just punched the poor dog in the nose as he's laying on my lap. Um, Okay, this is... I'm going to just say right now that I just threw so much out there that we have to discuss. But this all happens in like five minutes. And then we're going to sit on things forever and ever and ever. Yeah, the pacing has not improved very much 
since the first it again overcompensating last week it was you're cutting back and forth between three places too much now we're living with things way too long yeah you just put things in fast forward and then you hit the pause button and it's 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 just strange because it's not like that's that roller coaster that you ride the whole movie I feel like they rush through everything in the beginning to drag everything along at the end. Yeah, I definitely agree. What I do like, Walt is fine, by the way. Um, <laughs> what I do like here, I think the space loop is kind of cool. I like the portals, yeah. And I like that they sort of harken back to the joke of the average Joes trying to pull out the hammer and they can't do it. Now here it's, you know, what can we throw in the hole? What's going to come back? While Jane's trying to figure it out, everybody else is making a joke. So right. I thought that was kind of funny. The other thing here is that it does set up so much with Jane because we see how she has absorbed the ether. We obviously know the adverse effect it's going to have on her body. But what this does is set up everything that's going to happen not just through this movie, but I believe getting us to the point of love and thunder. So this is one of those instances where this movie that tends to be buried, this is one of two things in particular that I think become essential in the MCU and they just get lost in this film. I would agree with that because they were very smart about it. Whether or not they were going to they knew at this point they were going to do Love and Thunder and carry Jane's story through. You could have left it and it would have been fine, but they left enough of a breadcrumb trail to pick it up later. So they did do a good job of putting those wheels in motion. What I don't like is that the convergence seems forced. I feel like for an event this big, they sh the Asgardians should have been looking out for it like they do with Ragnarok. They're sort yeah. of prepared for it. And, you know, if if they knew that this was that there was the potential for this to happen, like, you know, when Odin is eventually explaining everything to Jane in the book, he does say that even though they're immortal, the nine realms have a beginning, middle and an end. So wouldn't you maybe be be more prepared for this I mean they are and I think that they did a really good job of leaning into that a little bit more as far as developing Asgard and I feel like this is where changing the director was a success because where Asgardians seemed sort of magic and a lot of Thor was him explaining to Jane how magic and science can be one and the same we're bridging that gap in Dark World a little bit more because they're showing how advanced the Asgard tech is. So I think that that was a smart choice to delve a little deeper in that regard. Yeah, but then it's bounced up against... To the point that you just made about the change in director working for the film, in that aspect it does, but then this entire scene is so badly overacted that... I, I can't help but roll my eyes and wish that Kenneth Banner was back, you know, because this goes like it was one thing when we got the Shakespeare in the Park jokes from Tony Stark and Thor within his within himself in the first film was sort of theatrical. Right. But that's because that's just how he knew to be because he was a god. This is like soap opera bad acting. 
The slapping was completely uncalled for. Angry Jane makes no sense. Thor never said, I'm coming back tomorrow. He said, I will return for you. And then she goes, I saw you in New York. Where were you? Saving the world? Saving the universe? From my brother, maybe? (laughs) No, and that's the thing. I feel like because... Endgame is so fresh and we are so focused on the loss of Tony. Avengers feel so much like Tony's movie, especially because Stark Industries is sort of the driving force. Yeah. But Avengers really is Thor's movie because Loki is the villain. It is carrying the story of this conflict between brothers all the way through. So... I like that they address that he was on Earth, and I do agree that Jane has a right to be angry because, for all she, well, she doesn't really know that the Bifrost was destroyed. All she knows is that she can't track him anymore. So, I I think it did need to be addressed. Like, okay, I saw you, but why didn't you come here? Well, the other thing is, you went to London. He might not have known where you were. He might not have known where to find you. But he was a little bit busy. Um. But I also think that it sort of dumbs her character down with the slapping because even though she does have a right to be angry, you're right, it is soap opera bad. But for somebody that is supposed to be a really strong character, she shouldn't be this hung up over a guy and she should be acting a little bit more mature about this. A hundred percent agreed. As she is medically examined on Asgard, this is Jane, of course, we learn that the energy of the ether will kill Jane and it continues to defend itself as others pose a threat. An angry Odin tells us that the Nine Realms are not timeless, which you brought up before, and can meet their end of days and that Malekith seeks to bring the dark days using the ether. Why has Odin become so hardened out of nowhere. This is such a step back for the character, and this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. He was always tough, but he was never cruel. He is so quick to say, she's not of Asgard, send her back to Earth where they have doctors, whatever happens, happens. And he knows who she is. He he knows full well what she means to Thor. Um... I think there's a couple of things. I think it's that he didn't think Thor would ever see her again because the Bifrost was destroyed. I think that he wasn't worried about what that might mean for Thor's future. And now uh, I think he's very concerned about Thor becoming his successor. So that's one thing. I think that because you could argue that he went not soft on on Loki in Thor because the reason Loki lets go of uh he had the hammer, didn't he? No, I don't think it was the handle of the hammer. He he was holding on to something. Whatever that it Thor was. had. Yeah. When when he lets go, it's because of what Odin said. He he was saying, I I was gonna do this all for you, father. I wanted to prove myself. Right. And he's just like, no. <laughs> so um I think that Loki's actions in the first one and especially Avengers are what did this now. But I'm really glad that you brought that up because 
I noticed the change and I wasn't really articulating it. I was just so focused on Anthony Hopkins' performance. And I was like, oh, okay, here's Hannibal Lecter. Here's the Anthony Hopkins we know and love. He's he's being very aggressive. Um, you know, and just watching him in scene, you could kind of tell that Natalie Portman and Chris Hemsworth are just like sitting there going, my God, he's good. Yeah, and I think you could tell that there was a little, and they're both great actors, there was a little bit of an intimidation factor there. I mean, could you blame them? But I think this is also a little bit of Anthony Hopkins enjoying the role a little bit more because when the first one came out, we were still on the cusp of these films being taken seriously. And we had talked a lot last week about the casting and how you get these big names. And we had credited that a lot of that to Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow taking the roles of Tony and Pepper. Um, I don't know in the first one that Anthony Hopkins like, Got it. I think he knew it was going to be a big film. I think that he understood the source material and the fan base. But I think once he probably saw a cut of the film and how it all came together, I think he was able to sink his teeth in a little bit more. Yeah, I I think that he was probably feeling the character a lot more. I think that, like anything else, you know, the, the deeper that you get in, not everybody is going to be Robert Downey Jr., right? Where they just kind of get it from the start. Um, I think that, especially for an Anthony Hopkins, just the further he got into the character, to your point, the more he understood it and the more he became that character. Right, and now he's got this developed chemistry with Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston, so I think that 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 helps too. For sure. Um, Okay, so while in captivity, Loki tells Frigga that she is not his mother, despite what she has done for him, and he justifies his actions as trying to spread the truths that were hidden from him. Malekith attacks Asgard, freeing those in captivity except for Loki. During the attack, Frigga is stabbed, protecting Jane, and is killed. Without the ether, Malekith and Algrim free from Asgard as Thor attacks them. This scene with Loki and I'm going to say this a few times, is outstanding. His self-righteousness is so incredible. I can't help but love every unhinged scene we get with him in this film. Yeah, I mean, we had called him the scene stealer last week, but he manages, I mean, he continues to do it and manages to elevate the performance even more. I think a lot of that too is that, they are giving him a little bit more to work with. They knew that they wanted to punch up this character and really track the story of these brothers being at odds. And I mean, really, this is where the film succeeds when you are focused on him and Thor butting heads. And when you are, when you make this movie Loki centric, that's where it's actually good. Uh, Especially in this scene, Frigga doesn't deserve this. No. That was really harsh, but you did need to set it up where, you know, spoiler alert, Frigga's going to die, but that is why Loki becomes unraveled. So you did need something to put him at that rock bottom. Yeah, I want to talk about this Frigga scene as well for a couple of reasons. The first, I want to talk about 
Christopher Eccleston, who is Malekith. Um, up to this point, you don't really know much about this character other than he's the ruler of the Dark Elves and he wants to unleash the Aether. And he's got this plan when the Nine Realms are in line and blah, blah, blah. But having him kill Frigga, kill the Queen of Asgard, and know that he's not leaving with what he came with, but knowing what he has done and the chain of events that he's about to set off, I thought he was excellent in the role. And this is a scene that puts your villain over the top. I would agree with that. Um I also think the timing of it was really good. I mean, obviously you need this chain of events for the rest of the film to spring off. Uh, But Jane has a pretty rough meeting with Thor's father. And right away, Frigga is kind to her. She really takes to her because she knows what she means to Thor. Uh, So you see this really nice relationship start to develop. And then the rug is yanked out from underneath you. Um, I also really like that they gave Rene Russo a little bit more meat and potatoes in this one. And she got to fight a little bit. Um, so I think that that was cool. But just when you start to build it up, it, it is pretty soul crushing. And that's what makes this film essential in the MCU. Yes. This scene and what this does for Thor moving forward, I would go so far as to say this does more for his character than anything that happens with Jane. And maybe I only say that because we haven't seen Love and Thunder yet. Maybe I say that because this was done a little bit better than I think this pining for Jane that kind of became a little too extra after a while. But I think they were always going to follow the Lady Thor storyline. But to your point, if they chose not to, this is what they needed to get right This is what makes the film essential. This is what makes you go and here he is. Because when he learns of Odin's death in Thor, even though it's a lie, Loki is lying to him. He's crushed and apologetic to Loki. We don't have him seeking vengeance yet. He he just lives with it and sort of accepts it right away. This is the reaction you need over a parent's death. Um, As horrible as it is, the Viking funeral, stunning. Knocked it out of the park. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. It really is. Thor tells Odin that he will take Jane to the Dark World to draw Malekith away from Asgard, where he will then kill him. But Odin doesn't want them to leave and prefers to fight using Asgardian warriors and orders Heimdall to close the Bifrost. We saw how well that worked the first time. Thor visits Loki, devastated by Frigga's death, and frees him in exchange for helping Thor move Jane to the Dark World. Using one of the ships belonging to the Dark Elves, Thor, Loki, and Jane escape Asgard through one of Loki's secret portals. Um, Odin here continues, for me, to take steps backwards. Because he goes from being a very calculated, not quick to the trigger sort of king, which was his whole thing trying to teach Thor in the first film, to now being completely irrational. I know that Frigga is gone, and I know that he's in mourning, but he is literally willing to put Asgardian lives in danger, the lives that he swears they have to protect, and it's like, make Jane go away. Um, The fact that 
he is willing to put their entire world on the precipice of extinction instead of just drawing Malekith away to go be killed in the Dark World makes no sense. I love that Thor calls him on that, though, because he says, how does this make you any different than Malekith? And Odin is almost acting like Thor in the first one. And he, because he says, I'm different because I won't lose. That's your ego talking. That is everything that you have criticized your son for. Right. Exactly. Um, these scenes with Loki, these are some of the best Loki scenes in the MCU. I remember thinking that the first time we saw this, that, you know, you, you saw the rift, obviously, in Thor. You've seen them against each other in Avengers. And I love that they barbosed him, for lack of a better term, much like they do in Pirates, where you take your villain and you realize that you're going to have to work with him against the big bad. Uh, so I love that they take on this role. I love that we as the audience are in the POV of Thor where we have no idea that we can trust him or not. Um, and I also really love this scene where he rounds up um, the warrior. Well, I guess it's the warriors too in Sif now. Uh, and he asks them to commit treason of the highest order. I love the scene where they're sitting around drinking, putting this plan in place, but I don't know that we need to keep cutting back to the conversation. I thought that that was an interesting choice because you do sort of land, and this is where these characters finally develop halfway through the second film, where each of them is voicing a concern with Thor's plan. So we get to hear their issue with it and then see their role play out in getting Thor, Loki, and Jane out of Asgard. Yeah. Uh, so where they're developing, I feel like Jane's role is regressing because she has done absolutely nothing to help and or console Thor through his loss at this point. Yeah. And it's like, this is the woman you love. Why? She hasn't done anything to show that she's going to be your rock through all of this. Yeah. This is where the romance thing is just a big swing and a miss. Because I'm at the point where I, they seemed like the opposites attract sort of couple in the first film. Now it just kind of seems like it's, I, it's, like, it's like a junior high school relationship where this is your first girlfriend or your first boyfriend and you're going to marry them because you don't know how life really works. And you're kind of just with them because, well, I'm with you. It doesn't make any sort of sense. I still think it's more that we haven't taken that step forward than Jane has a crush on a supermodel. Yeah. That's still how it feels. It, it just feels like we're living in this space. I think that with Thor, it's gone from pining for her to a little bit of a more of a mature feeling. Uh, and I think that that's also, you know, because of the way that Hemsworth plays it, I think he's, he's done a really good job as far as being that leading man who clearly is just so in love with her. Um, but I just feel like that doesn't get reciprocated. And 
it's fine if Jane doesn't know what to do, but like then show me that she feels guilt for being in the room with Frigga when this happens and listening to what Frigga asked her to do and being powerless to stop it. Just show me something from her. Right. Um, also worth mentioning here before we move on that uh, Zachary Levi is in this film recast as Fandral because Joshua Dallas was at this point doing Once Upon a Time and he became so committed in that that he couldn't be in this. And I kind of find that interesting because Disney's involved with both and quite honestly, he doesn't have an awful lot of scenes in this movie. I feel like you could have shot him over the course of three or four days. I agree. Once Upon a Time and Thor both started in 2011. So I guess without knowing the success of the television show uh, and the success of these films, you know, you didn't know what was going to have a sequel. You didn't know that you were going to get picked up for season two. But you're right, because it is all under the same studio. I could see if it was conflicting studios and you had to choose. But you're telling me that for... Somebody with such little screen time, you couldn't work out a schedule. I mean, it worked out for Josh Dallas because he goes on to meet Jennifer Goodwin and he's now married to her in once Judy hops. Yeah. But um, yeah, I thought that that was kind of interesting that they did unless he just didn't want to do it. But you really this couldn't be worked out. And instead we got Flynn Rider. I'm OK with that, though. What I'm not OK with is that there's an hour left in this film oh my God. at this point. There is an hour left in the film at this point. This should be the start of the third act, and there's an hour left. How? Is it that the film is too dialogue-driven? Because there's a lot of dialogue. Are there too many subplots? I think the problem is that this film is just too all over the place. It's all over the place with the pacing. It's all over the place with the dialogue. It's all over the place with the subplot. I think it's just everything is just a cacophony of disaster. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I like the actual breakout of Asgard. But like I said, I don't know that you needed to keep cutting back to the roundtable discussion. Yeah, it's not Ocean's Eleven. Right. Before that's a really good comparison, actually. Before we do actually break out of Asgard, I want to talk about the biggest success of this film. And that is when Thor is escorting Loki out uh, and he is shape-shifting. To see yes. Chris Evans as the Cap, it's a great cameo. But to see him have to act as Loki, people do not give him enough credit for how talented he is. Because he had to get down Tom Hiddleston's mannerism and delivery, and he freaking knocked it out of the park. It's it was great. I it, it I laughed hard when I saw it the first time, and it got me just as hard here because, admittedly, I haven't seen this in so long, and I completely forgot that it had even happened. Same in London, Darcy bails Eric out of his institution slash jail slash we don't know exactly where he is. Um, as recent readings in their research and equipment <laughs> are showing us that he was not crazy all along and his theories were right on the dark world or in the dark world. Cause they don't really say whether it's a planet or not. If you're in it, if you're on it, the ether continues to consume Jane while Loki and Thor bicker and fight 
Malekith arrives and Loki offers Jane as a sacrifice. This is as he is fighting Thor and he cuts off Thor's hand. Malekith draws the ether out of Jane and we see that the fight between Thor and Loki was a Loki projection. Thor and Loki continue to fight the rest of the Dark Elves, and Loki is stabbed and seemingly killed in the process. It's no uh, worth noting that there's 40 minutes left in the movie at this point in time. Right. This seems to be the big climax, and we still have to get back to Earth. How, at this point, there is 40 minutes left in this movie is something that upon multiple watchings at this point, including the first in the movie theater, I don't understand how there's 40 minutes left in this movie. Well, I remember I was working the other day and I heard you watching this when Thor goes Loki now. And that's when it's revealed that, you know, this was part of the plan the whole time. And Loki actually did come through and I'm like, Oh, okay. He's almost done. And you told me you still had 40 minutes left and I went, "What?" I I couldn't believe it that cuz the runtime doesn't feel that long, but the last part of this movie, I, I don't even want to call it the last act because it's it's not. But it this, feels this, like it's supposed to be. Right. It yeah, pacing all over the place. I mean, this does feel like this is a four-act film, which just goes to prove how all over the place it is. Yeah. Speaking of, I'm glad you brought up uh, the point about not being sure if it's in the dark world, on the dark world, Um, because we do need a little bit more clarity on whether that's a planet, a realm or whatever. I don't know if you caught it, but when uh, Eric is doing his presentation in the institution and we get the Stan Lee cameo. Right. It is drawn out the same way Jane had it in her book on the chalkboard behind him. And I noticed Nita Valir behind him, but it was one of the realms. And I'm like, I thought that was the star where he goes to make Stormbreaker. That's what I thought. So I thought it was a planet. I don't I, I, I can't keep track of some of this. I have to be honest with you. As much as I love Marvel, like this is where when people get overwhelmed with Marvel, this is why they get overwhelmed with Marvel. Right, and we haven't even entered the multiverse at this point. Yeah. So look, this is a great scene for Loki and Thor. Um, I love that the entire time you're not sure if you can trust Loki. I mean, you still don't know if you can trust Loki when all is said and done, because ultimately Loki's just going to do what's good for himself. I love the projection. I love the trickery, but... There should not be this much time left in this film. This is my biggest gripe with it. Right, because as much as the rest of the film has suffered, the biggest success of it is this conflict between the brothers. And you've got Thor grasping at straws for the last bit of trust that he can find in Loki. And Loki actually comes through. It is a great misdirect for the audience that he's been in on the plan the entire time. And he actually to avenge his mother's death. And I've said it a million times at this point, he's not actually going to hurt his family. He never was, but because his family got hurt because of his actions, he does want to get back on the right side of this. Uh, So I'm glad he got that redemption. I'm glad that Thor promises that he is going to clear his name, but okay. That conflict is seemingly resolved right now. You've gotten the ether out of Jane 
like what else is really left? Obviously, you can't leave Earth in shambles. But if you wanted to shorten the running time of this movie, you could have done it so that Malekith was was destroyed and doesn't make one final play at Earth. Yeah, and what's interesting here is that on paper, this movie goes into fast forward, but the runtime doesn't. And I have some I have some notes as to where we are in running time. Let's see how fast fast forward really is. Jane receives a phone call from Richard and finds where the portal from London has ended up, so they cross through it and head back to Earth to intercept Malekith, who is on Earth as well. They are reunited with Eric and Darcy, while on Asgard, Odin, Odin is told that Loki is dead, and that Thor, Jane, and the Aether are missing. We learn that Malekith is set to fire off the Aether when the Nine Realms are in line, and Eric shows up... Uh, or he shows he shows up at the point in which the ether will be fired off and he shows that that point which is like the halfway point between everything is in Greenwich as that is the center of the convergence science 27 minutes left in this film by the way Malekith and the dark elves arrive and are fought off by Thor while Jane and Eric's scientific equipment causes anomalies that opens portals to buy Thor time and distract Malekith um, here's the thing. I actually looked this up to see what the definition of this equipment was. It's defined as scientific equipment. That's how they define it in the plot of this film. They're, they, they use their scientific equipment. So they don't even know exactly what it is. Just science. That's a big miss. I need to get a copy of the script and see if it was if it was written out that way in the script as well. Probably because they really never do elaborate on on what it is. So every time we've made a joke about, you know, because science going back to last week, it's at this point that they literally have it on paper that but science. I will say, though, I like how Jane has figured out a way to harness that and she's literally making people disappear by moving these portals. Look, for a sci-fi film and for a Marvel film, it's a great sight gag. But like, I feel like that's the only reason we got back to Earth was so that they could do this trick. I would agree. But being that it is commit to this film and we have it, I think as far as, I mean, think about it. Think about the training Dr. Strange had to do to do almost that exact same thing. And she's figured out a way to use this scientific equipment to actually make that happen. Yeah, I I think it's, you know what? It's just so distracting that the runtime is what it is. I know that I'm getting repetitive, but I cannot come off of this. This entire thing drags and drags and dra- like if you haven't seen this movie in a while or if you've never seen it i don't think you understand how painful it is to watch the conclusion of this film right and it certainly wasn't worth it because this whole thing was really at the expense of dumbing eric and darcy down and now you're going to give intern ian who we haven't cared about this entire time a, a place to step up and save darcy right Completely unmotivated. 
Yeah, so Thor and Malekith fight between the portals and the other worlds until Thor ends up on mass transit, leaving Malekith <laughs> alone to unleash the ether during the peak of the convergence. But thankfully, the trains in London are efficient. So Thor <laughs> arrives on time and sends Malekith through a portal where he is crushed by his own damaged ship. Back on Asgard, Thor declines the chance to be the king of Asgard as he wants to continue to protect the Nine Realms as a warrior. Odin allows Thor to go, and we see that this is in fact a projection of Loki the entire time, and Loki faked his own death. So, you know, I said it before, and I'll say it again. The final battle scene is cool. What you did with the portals is cool, but it just drags on for far too long. Agreed. And I think that it takes what, up until that point, because remember, we haven't like really seen a Doctor Strange at this point. So you're kind of taking this idea that we've not seen before, and it's really cool, and it's unique, but when you see Doctor Strange, and that's a film that, as much as we enjoy it, we said it, it kind of drags on a little bit. It's a little boring, but... It's very explainy. But... I feel like I get more out of that, and it doesn't seem to drag on when compared to this. Honestly, I mean, I thought we were going to be much more harsh on the film than we've been. So with that in mind that we haven't really torn it apart, I think this is where this movie fails. And it actually might be... This is starting to sound like my final synopsis, and I'm not trying to jump ahead, but I think just because of this scene... The film overall might be better than we're giving it credit for, but this is where it fails. Because then after that, you know, you've got this great juxtaposition of one son wanting the throne and the other deciding that he wants to give it up, which is really, you know, the big storyline throughout this whole film. It's a huge thread throughout Thor that they've been at odds with each other. Um and it's a huge character moment for Thor because yes. now he's figured out how, you know, the first the first film was a story of redemption for him because he just wanted to be worthy, not just of his his hammer, but in his father's eyes. And he's ready to step into that role. But there's something about it that he's still not mature enough to do it yet. Now you've got a much more complete arc that he realizes not only that he realizes what his capabilities are and how they will be used most effectively. So I think he's landed in a great place and I feel like it ties up in a bow where he and Loki are at once it's revealed that it is Loki uh, because this film, the whole film has been a vehicle for their relationship. Yeah. The only thing that I will say here before we get into our final review on our final say of the film, is I think in this scene, this is where comedy fails in this film, where it's very good in Ragnarok. Where it fails here is you're trying to be funny without looking at the world that you are living in and without understanding your characters. You put Thor on a train with the fate of the nine realms in the balance because it would be funny to put him on a train and have a woman fall into one of his pecs and right. like giggle about it mm -hmm. 
But all he would have to do is walk up a flight of stairs with Milnir and get anywhere he he can dream of being in a nanosecond because he has the ability to fly. Right. Why is he wasting time on a train when the fate of the universe is in the balance? Oh, because it's funny. Well, I ha- this might be a reach, but because every time he has tried to fly, there have been times where he's falling and he's summoning for Mjolnir, but it goes through a portal. So maybe he feels like this is the safest way to go about it because he can't rely on you know, ending up in another dimension or something. But who's to say that that's not going to happen to the train that he's on, that it's not going to go through a portal? Yeah. I, th- call me crazy. I don't think that's what they were intending when they wrote that scene into the movie. No. Just my guess. All right. Final review. I'll just go first. Here's the thing. I think that the movie is necessary for what we see in regards to Jane and the ether. And for Frigga and her death, because that has such an effect on Thor, and that really plays out in Endgame. Um, But the pacing is painfully slow. The story's all over the place. The writing is cliched. A lot of the scenes are really poorly overacted. Um, I'm happy to see that Loki is still conning people. Honestly, like, I like this film for Loki more than I like it for Thor or any other character. And when the title character is Thor and this is Thor the Dark World while I enjoy Loki I should enjoy Loki in Loki not Loki in Thor does that make sense what I'm saying it absolutely does Um, but I think this makes the movie stronger when you are focusing on Loki Um, because he is better as a plot point for Thor than he is a standalone character. Spoiler alert for my Loki series thoughts, which I'm hoping will change on a second viewing. But that was my initial reaction is that I like Loki more as a plot point than I do a fully developed character. But that said, in this film, I think that when you focus on Loki and when you focus on his story with Thor and you take everything else out of it, it definitely makes it stronger. And now I feel like I'm being repetitive because I don't have too much to add other than what I said before. I think that when you focus on the story about the brothers, that's what makes this a good film. Um, I definitely didn't dislike it as much as I did the first time around. Um, Like I said earlier, it is better than we had initially given it credit for. But I think that's it. You just have to stay like laser focused on Thor and Loki. And if you look at this as more of a character study than this big action film, I think that's what makes it a good movie. And some might argue that that's what makes it worse because you should be able to appreciate the film as a whole and enjoy it as a whole as opposed to, well, if you strip it down to this... You got to strip it down to almost nothing to to make it seem good. Is this still the worst film in the MCU? That's the big question that we had going into this review. Um, For me, no, but I really didn't like Eternals. I think personally, Eternals is the worst film in the MCU and it's not even close. 
um, which doesn't make this film better. It just tells you how bad The Eternals was. You want to talk about a movie with an obscene runtime that was just boring and went nowhere. Um, eventually, we're going to have to discuss it, but I'm kind of putting that off as long as I can. Um, I feel Eternals built for the for the cameo in the end credits. I don't even think it built for that. I honestly, let's. I'm just. We're gonna pin it until we have the discussion about it. But I do think this is probably the second worst film in the MCU. Had Eternals not come out, or had Eternals been a half an hour shorter than it was, because that was a big problem with Eternals. That then this probably would still be the worst. I think it is the second worst film in the MCU. I would agree with that, but when I think how far down on the list it is, I really thought we were going to be sitting here trashing this film, and that's that's a positive that came from this for me, is that I wasn't as hard on it as I anticipated being. Sure. Well, we want to know what you have to say about Thor The Dark World. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked... Reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you're hosting an event this year, if you need save the dates, table numbers, thank you cards, Kelly has exactly what you are looking for, especially if you need that little Disney touch. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. See everything that she's got to offer and all of her services at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. We got the trailer drop for Hocus Pocus 2. The highly anticipated, at least for me, trailer drop. It's coming at the end of September. Um, I think the trailer, they give you just enough to pique your interest. But what I will give it credit for, and it's very much a teaser trailer, it doesn't, it's not what I thought it was going to be. What I thought it was going to be was basically just a rehash of the original where it's a group of kids that are trying to prove that this never happened or that it's a myth and they read from the book and they light the black flame candle and all that in this case it sort of seems like these girls are like actually into practicing like witchcraft and or the dark arts and their reaction seems like they didn't anticipate it to work rather than, oh my God, this is real and what have we done? Right, which I do like. I think it gives it sort of a modern twist. Um, Another modern twist that I love is in the poster art, uh, Mary always has the vacuum cleaner instead of a broom. She's on Roombas. I don't know if you caught that. She's got a Roomba on each foot. I didn't catch that. Uh, So I thought that was hysterical. Um, Here's what I don't love, though. I don't love, actually, that the black flame candle comes back into play. 
because that was how you summoned them the first time was that a virgin had to light the candle. And I'm sure we're going to see that again. And hopefully they don't make it an ongoing joke like the first one. However, the whole thing with the first film is that you can't just kill the Sanderson sisters because they will always come back when they hung them in Salem they came back because of Winifred's spell. When they burned them in the library, they came back because the spell was still protecting them. They needed the sun. The sunrise is what killed them. Right. So if they turn to dust, they should technically not be able to be brought back by the black flame candle. So there needs to be another way. There needs to be some sort of loophole that they come through. That's what I'm not buying right now. Well, we're going to find out in a couple of months here. Uh, in fact, I think it's like 30 days to, or uh, three months to the day, actually. Uh, we're going to find out. So we're roughly 90 days away from getting the answer to that question. And I can only hope for myself that Hocus Pocus 2 is better than the first film. Well, we are going to find out right away because, spoiler alert, I am going to make Sean watch this and review it for the show immediately. We don't usually do movies as soon as they come out, but that one, you're, you're not getting out of this. Yeah, I hope it's good. Um, let's talk about some other disheartening news. Um, starting with, in typical Disney fashion, an IT glitch that had so many people excited to only let us down 20 minutes later. And we're discussing the very temporary, but not at all, return of the annual passes outside of the Pixie Dust Pass. So, for those who did not hear about this, earlier this week, at about 8.30 in the morning, on the Disney Annual Pass Holder website, the Pirate Pass and the Sorcerer Pass, which are only available for Florida residents and DVC members, became available on the AP Purchase website. So everybody spreads this news like wildfire because we've talked at nauseum on this show about how we are desperately in need of them to unlock the annual passes that allow us to go on the weekends. Um, we did buy the Pixie Pass we talked about it in our last Dockside chat. We will elaborate further on our first use of it in an upcoming Dockside chat, so I'm not going to waste your time with that now. But I don't... The big, the big point of this is, within 15 minutes, Disney corrected it. First off, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let you check out with anything that was in your cart, and then they shut everything down again. The point of this is, I don't understand why, for a company that gave us Rise of the Resistance and Cosmic Rewind, why IT continues to be such a problem. It is so bad. And and not just with things like that. Even on the travel agent end, we still use the Disney website to book. We just have a different login and a different portal. But it's still all going to the same place. That crashes on me constantly. I just don't understand for a company that has historically been built on technological advancement how in the year 2022 your website is trash i mean for crying out loud walt disney himself practically invented green screen technology when they did mary poppins the the same logistics behind it are what we are using now 
he'd be so disappointed that the website doesn't work. Now, once some, we got him to understand the internet. Yeah. Now, some people are saying that they think, well, it's okay that it got unlocked because at least it means that it's coming back soon. I don't know where anybody made that connection. It could have just been that somebody coded improperly. But it does lead to the interesting question of when the passes come back. Incredipass was not included in this glitch. So, living in the world where somebody got it right and they are going to unlock the passes again, is it possible that they are only allowing DVC and Florida residents to purchase them at this time? I'm not so sure that that is totally off the table at this point. Right, because... The way that I'm thinking about this, I used to work at a concert venue and we use Ticketmaster to do the on sales. So, you know, you usually get your pre-sale where you need the code to yeah. purchase the tickets and then you have your public on sale. So you program both of those things and you set the time for them to go off much like you would you know if you're using a site to schedule your social media posts you can determine the time or if you delay sending an email you can say it, it all works the same way so my guess is they went to set the time on those two and everything else was correct but instead of setting it for a future date they did it for like Tomorrow, my guess is they they set it up the day before and it just fired out the next morning. And that's why within 15 minutes they realized and it was taken down. But I mean, that's the thing. I, I came out to talk to you in the morning. You said, hey, they're on sale. I'm going to upgrade. I said, OK, great. I went to get ready for work. And the next thing I know, I come back out and you're like, nope, no, we're not. <sighs> Such a disappointment. Sadly, that's not the most disappointing news this week. We will save the conversation about this news for an upcoming dockside chat um, because it's a lot to talk about and this really isn't the forum for it. And I feel like it's still developing. Bob Chapik's contract has been extended into 2025. Um, that's the news. Those are the facts. Opinions and speculation I think we're just going to put a pin in that until we have margaritas in front of us. Exactly. Um, but here's the thing. It didn't shock anybody to hear the news, but it didn't make it any less uh, disappointing. I don't think anybody expected that he would be gone right now, but it didn't make it any less disappointing. I really don't want to say too much. Uh, I'm I'm not ready to talk about it. I guess I guess you can say that I was surprised by it. I thought we'd be done by the end of this year, but that's all I'll say for now. And unless you're going to make me a margarita, I, I'm not going to discuss this. All right. Well, we're going to have to put a pin in that, but we want to know what you have to say about any of this news, what you are excited about, what you are disappointed in. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. 
On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.